God, you are the one who makes all things beautiful. This week we were reminded of your handiwork falling from the sky. Snowflakes. Each one unique. Each one handcrafted. Each one teaching us. We can't help but to view the snow and be reminded that you promised to wash our sins as white as snow. We were dirty, filthy, red like crimson, but you made us clean, pure, white like snow. So this week, we've seen the gospel on the ground. Now it's time to hear the gospel from the book. Holy Spirit, please come alongside and aid in this exposition. Open our eyes that we may see afresh the beauty of the gospel. Open our ears that we may hear the sting of the gospel. Open our hearts that we may receive the message of the gospel. We are about to open your word. You caused this word to be written for our instruction and edification. You promised your word would not return void. That's including your word here in 1 Kings. So Father, we are not wasting our time. We know that. You want to do deep work in us through 1 Kings 12 and 13. You laid your heart bare on these pages. So we are not opening this like any other book. This is a talking book. Oh, divine spirit, every verse we hope to teach and every soul we hope to reach is in vain unless you move among us. Father, help me not to read into the text what is not there and not to neglect to say what is there. Help me to give an honest treatment of the passage. For I will stand before you and give an account of how I preached it to your people. God, bury our sin in the ocean of Jesus' blood. Help them to sink to the depths where Satan, the great accuser, cannot fish them out and dangle them before us. We came to eat. Feed us, heavenly provider. This is our corporate plea. Amen. We've got a lot going on in this text. We've got people bowing before a golden cow. I kid you not. They are worshiping a cow that can't even move. Not a Chick-fil-A cow who can balance on billboards and write creative messages. We're talking about a cow you can't even milk. We also have someone in cowboy boots and a cowboy hat with a long southern drawl laying the law down in a church service. Not only did he lay the law down, he had the law called on him. And some of you non-Christians might think, I don't plan on worshiping a cow or listening to anyone with a southern drawl, so I'm going to go ahead and mentally check out. Well, that would be a mistake. 
This text is 3,000 years ago, but it's extremely relevant for you. It reveals a God who must be worshipped. It reveals that this God must be worshipped in the way he designed. It reveals you can't come to God how you want. You must come through pleasing sacrifice. You will find out there is very little difference in what these people are doing with the golden cow and what you are doing 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Christian, if you are filled with insecurities, this text has help for you. If you are plagued by anxieties, this text has instruction for you. If you have questions about true worship, this text has answers for you. If you are overwhelmed by your sin, this text points you to Christ, the only one who can deal with your sin. My goals for you, Christian, are at the end of this preaching event for you to say, I'm worshiping some golden cows. I will leave and destroy them. Second, I want you to say, I recognize now that Satan has always been trying to corrupt worship. I'm going to fight to keep it pure. Finally, when you are leaving, I want you to say this. My days are filled with spiritual stumbles. But when I go to sleep, I sleep under Jesus' blood. I give you from 1 Kings 12, 25 through 13, 10. Give me that man-made religion. I told you we've got a lot going on in this text. How are we going to get it all out? Well, we're going to get it all out in three movements. Jeroboam fortifies two cities and plants two churches. Chapter 12, verse 25 through 33. God deploys one prophet and interrupts one service. Chapter 13, verses 1 through 10. Kyle asks three questions and gives three life-changing lessons. Those are the applications. Jeroboam fortifies two cities and plants two churches. God deploys one prophet and interrupts one service. Kyle asks three questions and gives what I hope are three life-changing lessons. I'm going to backload all of my applications today. First, interpretation, then we will arrive at application. I will exegete the literature, then I will exegete the listeners. We will spend the first two movements seeing what happened 3,000 years ago. Then I will spend the next movement finding out why that is so important for us. First, Jeroboam fortifies two cities and plants two churches. Allow me to give you a little context. God's king is gone. Solomon kicked the bucket. After his death, the united kingdom became the divided kingdom. For 120 years, the kingdom was united. That changed the last week. For 120 years, only one person wore the crown at a time. Saul wore it for 40 years. David for 40 years. Solomon for 40 years. But last week, one crown became two. Let's remind ourselves of the two men wearing the crowns. 
King Jeroboam leading Israel, the northern ten tribes. King Rehoboam leading Judah, the southern two tribes. We nicknamed Jeroboam Jerry. We nicknamed Rehoboam Ray. And you might think they are related because their names sound alike. Ray, Boam, Jerry, Boam, the Boam brothers. No, these are, these are two different family lines entirely. Rehoboam leads Judah, which consists of two tribes. You see Judah in the red there in the south. Jeroboam leads Israel, which consists of ten tribes. You see Israel there in the, in the yellow in the north. All our time today will be spent in the north. Our text focuses solely on Jeroboam. And the text begins in verse 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. Jeroboam built Shechem. The city already existed. What this means is he fortifies it. He secures the city against invaders. He builds a wall around it. He installs security cameras, puts up trespassers will be shot signs. He fortifies an existing city. You must realize that Solomon had spent 20 years building a city structure. All that went to Rehoboam. Rehoboam is chilling out in Jerusalem. Jeroboam has work to do to make his allotment of tribes look like an actual kingdom. He lacked any kind of institutional structure to support and protect his reign. He wants to make Shechem his Jerusalem. Shechem was centrally located. Jerry builds a, a royal residence there. You may remember from last week, Rehoboam actually was coronated in Shechem, but they rejected his reign. Jeroboam has now secured his personal safety. He built a small Fort Knox in Shechem and feels comfortable now if the southerners try to attack. He did the same thing to another city about 30 miles away. He's now fortified two cities. Verse 26. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem. Then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Jerry is an astute political operator. He doesn't want the kingdom to unite again. He knows he's a dead man if the kingdom unites. He's terrified. He fears a pilgrimage to the temple would drive his constituency away. He can't allow his people to go to Jerusalem to worship. If they go south, they will never move back north. Hear Jeroboam talking to himself and realizing what will happen when the people understand this is not just a choice between Rehoboam and Jeroboam, but between Jeroboam and the son of David. He knows the Lord is in the business of turning hearts to himself. Three times in the text, he fears the people's return. 
we get a peek into the insecurities of Jeroboam. He reckons that his new throne and his new reign, it's a volatile situation, therefore he must work to preserve it. The newly crowned monarch of Israel immediately sets about to fix the situation. He went into fix-it mode. Sin usually follows close on the hills when we go into fix-it mode. He instinctively tries to sort it out. He will do nine things, all arising from anxiety. Anxiety leads to creating your own gods of security. Let's view his gods of security. Verse 28. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Notice, Jerry processes inwardly, he says in his heart. Then he processes outwardly, he takes counsel. But he never processes upwardly, he never takes his anxiety to God. His anxieties drove him to create gods, not bow before God. Jerry has fortified two cities now. And he's planted two churches. He plants them at the northern and southern boundaries of his territory. At Dan, you see on the map, and Bethel. He shrewdly selects sites. In a stroke of genius, he thinks, if I plant two temples, the people will, will not go to the temple in Jerusalem to worship. Jerry's temples will compete with Rehoboam's temple in the south. They will rival God's temple. He is making it very convenient to serve the Lord. That's his strategy. Present this like a privilege. This is a burden you've been bearing. But you know what I'm going to do? You, you know what I'm going to do for you? I'm going to relieve you of the burden. You will not have to travel all the way to Jerusalem. You don't have to go south where they drink sweet tea and cook everything in bacon fat. This is Jerry's call to worship. He calls them on the grounds of convenience. More convenient, less demanding. His calls to worship look nothing like God's calls to worship. For God's calls are very demanding and often inconvenient. Church, I do not find anywhere in the Bible where God is concerned with your convenience in corporate worship. Well, if, if we could just make it a little earlier or at this time, if it could be online, so I don't have to actually attend. If it could have a coffee house environment. If I didn't have to drive so far in my $50,000 vehicle with heated seats. 
Jerry couched his new religious order as a matter of convenience. Jerry's mouth seeks to smooth over his idolatry. Our mouths tend to do that. We have a whole church culture that's built around this golden calf practice. Let's make it easier. Less hard on the ears, less taxing. R.C. Sproul said, The cow gave no law and demanded no obedience. It had no wrath or justice or holiness to be feared. It was deaf, dumb, and impotent. But at least it could not intrude on their fun and call them judgmental. It was a religion designed by men, practiced by men, and ultimately useless for men. End quote. This is Jerry's golden calf project. He sets up golden cows. If you are familiar with Israel's history, you must gasp at this point. <gasps> this is the quintessential picture of idolatry. This is the staple of idolatry. It's recalling Exodus 32. This is what Aaron did. He built a golden calf and told the people to worship. Jerry doubles Aaron. He made two of them. Hold my beer, Aaron. This is horrifyingly stunning. Jerry institutes some sacred cows. These golden shrines of bovine deities will live in infamy. By the way, God cannot be captured by an image any more than he can be confined in a temple. Jerry makes the image depicting God, and that's breaking the second commandment. Verse 30. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. <laughs> Look! All the people flock to the new places of worship. It was a success. Jerry kept his people from going down to Jerusalem. His scheme works to perfection. In most people's eyes, it's a grand success. It's popular. The people love it. It is so convenient. The masses embrace the worship of the bull calf. They bow the knee to the bovine. Jerry's church planting became sin. His temple campuses were stained with transgression. It made people guilty and deserving of punishment before a holy God. Verse 31. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. Apparently in these imitation temples there were imitation priests. Priests not from the tribe where God said all the priests should come from. Levi. Jerry practices ordination of non-Levitical priests. He's inclusive to a fault. Look, I know down in Jerusalem, they say only the Levites can be priests. Not here. Anyone who feels like it can serve in this office. Jerry has unauthorized priests in unauthorized temples 
making unauthorized sacrifices. Verse 32. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah. He offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the priest of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day of the 8th month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. It seems Jeroboam was acting the part of a priest performing sacrifices himself. Church, these were not pleasing sacrifices. God wasn't smelling their sweet savor. He was not accepting them. You can't come to God how you want to come to God. You must come to God how he has revealed it in his word. And he revealed he's only accepting sacrifices in the Jerusalem temple. Jerry even creates his own religious calendar. A festival is introduced. He institutes a new religious holiday. It's a parody of the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabs was celebrated the 15th day of the 7th month, and Jerry's was celebrated the 15th day of the 8th month. Notice that the text reverberates with this rhythm, he made, he made, he made. Jerry created a whole program. He made a whole new religion. He's innovative. He creates his own home-brewed elixir. He's the founder of a counterfeit religion. He can say all he wants that this is worship to Yahweh. But Yahweh isn't receiving any of that worship. This is bootleg religion. A counterfeit religion. Worship has gone bovine. I imagine there were other things going on in addition to making cow statues and creating festivals and priests. People were probably writing songs. Golden cow, take the wheel, take it from my hand because I can't do this on my own. Selling little bumper stickers of a cow eating a little Darwin fish with legs. Other stickers said, this golden cow is my co-pilot. He's created it all. Jerry initiates new liturgical innovations. In spite of the clear prophetic word, worship me in Jerusalem in the temple Solomon built with the priest I select, Jerry and his people chose a more convenient way. This violates God's command to worship him in the place of his choice, Jerusalem. This is when good reasoning violates the command of God. Jerry has institutionalized his false gospel. Worship in the wrong place, at the wrong altar, to the wrong God, with a wrong festival, through a wrong priesthood, Everything about this is wrong. This is sheer invention. This is man-made religion. Give me that man-made religion. Give me that man-made religion. Give me that man-made religion. It's good enough for me. 
I always like to sing because there's a few of you who can really sing and I like to watch your faces when I sing. It's the funniest thing I've ever seen. He's committed himself to a path of perverted worship, manufactured religion. Let, let's compare and contrast. This chart is from Paul House. Uh, let's compare Judah and Rehoboam with Israel and Jeroboam. Judah and Rehoboam, there were no images of God. But in Israel with Jeroboam, veneration of calves. Judah with Rehoboam, there was a Levitical priesthood. Israel, Jeroboam, multi-tribal priesthood. Judah, Rehoboam, there was a central sanctuary. Israel, Jeroboam, local and regional sanctuaries. All of that to say this, Jeroboam fortifies two cities and he plants two churches. That's chapter 12, verses 25 through 33. Now, God deploys one prophet and interrupts one service. Chapter 13, verses 1 through 10. Jeroboam fortifies two cities and plants two churches. God deploys one prophet and interrupts one service. Verse 1. And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. There are two services going on, one in Dan and one in Bethel. But the prophet only interrupts one service. The service, the campus, where King Jeroboam worships. While the ceremony at Bethel was going on, while the church service was happening, the MOG busts in. The Mog, the man of God. Not simply a godly man, but a prophet. We don't know the prophet's name. He's an unnamed man of God. And he's about to preach a sermon that could get him arrested. We have in one worship service, the hard-hitting prophet and a hard-hearted king. As I said, we don't have the name of this prophet, but we do have his origin. He originated from... Judah. This is a southern prophet. A southern prophet that came into the north. Now I'm sure he would have rather stayed in the south. Stayed where his audience are true followers of Yahweh. Where his message is better received. But he goes to the north anyway because God sent him. He enters a hostile territory. Here's this southerner. With his stretched out long vowels. And slow speaking. He's got a dip can in his back pocket. Actually, uh, southern prophets in Israel were quite different than southern preachers in the American South. Either way, the confrontation happens at the altar. We are told he came from Judah, the tribe of David. But to Jeroboam, it must have seemed like he came out of nowhere. The southern prophet charges through the doors and begins denouncing what is taking place in the worship service. Verse 2. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord. Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name. 
And he shall sacrifice on you the priest of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. This mog, this MOG, this man of God, isn't looking at Jeroboam as he gives this prophecy. Rather, he's looking at the altar. O altar, O altar. He tells the altar in the presence of all the worshipers and the king, a son will be born into David's house named Josiah, and he will, listen to this, he will sacrifice the sacrificers. Human bones will be burned on you. This is one of the most remarkable instances of Old Testament prophecy. The future acts of Josiah are brutal, and they will happen three centuries later. You can read about them this afternoon in 2 Kings 23. A reformation will take place during the days of Josiah. God is prophesying 300 years into the future, prophesying the name of this man and the actions of this man who was born. The Mog brought the word of the Lord, not a word. And then he says, you want proof? Verse 3. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him. Let's pause here, church. This unwelcomed prophet makes Jeroboam fume. Who do you think you are interrupting our worship service? Arrest this man. The king called the law on the prophet. The king can do that. He walks around with the royal bodyguard. The man of God may have just laid down the law, but now he has the law called on him. It's no mistaken who needs to be arrested. The king is pointing at him. But notice what happened as he pointed. Verse 4b. And his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up so that he could not draw it back to himself. Jerry raised his hand against the man of God. Jerry do you think your hand has power to silence the word of the Lord? God will not be silenced. He can immobilize the hand that tries to stiff arm him. Jeroboam's arm froze, paralyzed. It's like someone hit the pause button, but just on his arm, not the rest of his body. He could move his other arm, he could move his legs, he could blink his eyes, but his one pointing arm was frozen stiff. Then like a leaf that withers and dries up, that's what the arm started to do. He became a man with a withered hand. Paralysis of the arm. It dried and withered while being outstretched. Everyone in the worship service saw it. Verse 5, the altar also was torn down and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. 
It seems at the same time as the withered arm, the promised sign is enacted. The altar does split and its ashes are poured out. Immobilized hand and immobilized altar. God reveals the sham of man-made religion. Man-made ways to please God do not stand up to the word of the Lord. What was the king's response? We find it in verse 6. And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God. Notice he did not say my God. And pray for me, that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him and became like it was before. This terrified king begs for help. He's singing a different tune. He went from shouting, seize him, to begging, please pray for me. This is a humiliating and scary event. A small mercy is granted to the king. The mog prays for him. Right in the middle of the worship service. It's the only prayer that was ever heard from that Bethel temple. Jerry's arm was restored. It's important to note that his body was healed, but his soul was never saved. That becomes evident in verse 7. And the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a, a reward. And the man of God said to the king, If you give me half of your house, I will not go in with you, and I will not eat bread or drink water in this place. For so was it commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way that you came. The king will attempt to buy this man's loyalty. Instead of arresting him for disturbing the peace, the king now offers him a reward. This is the king's hopeful invitation. Come for some lobster. You don't have lobster down south. What about some clam chowder? He wants to win the prophet's favor by attempting to offer him food. It's a not-so-subtle bribe. He's seeking to buy the man of God off. Everyone has a price. But Jerry doesn't get it. The events that transpire demand humility, not hospitality. The prophet refuses to compromise. If you gave me ten of your twelve, ten, uh, five of your ten tribes, I wouldn't sit down and break bread with you. His mission compelled him not to tarry in Bethel, not to eat or drink there. He's under strict orders simply to give God's message and bounce. Oh, come on. Stay a while and fuel up for the long journey. Lunch on me. Nothing could entice the man of God to disobey the instruction of the Lord. He resisted the same way Jesus resisted his temptation in the desert. By repeating the word of God. Maybe the cultural aspect of meals together, signifying fellowship, speaks as to why God would not allow the mog to stay and eat. Eating a meal together was tantamount to fellowshipping with an idolater. Social fraternizing may have given the impression that the man of God approved of what was happening. So he is told, don't eat a crumb, don't drink a drop, shake the dust off your feet on the way out. 
profits must not be for sale. Verse 10. So he went another way and did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. The man of God leaves by another way as he was commanded to by God. And this suggests that the message he brought would not be reversed. Jeroboam fortifies two cities and plants two churches. God deploys one prophet and interrupts one service. Kyle asks three questions and gives three life-changing lessons. I will ask the three questions first, then we will regroup, and then I'll give the three, hopefully, life-changing lessons. But we will begin with the questions. Question number one. Do you view your sin as idolatry? When I started to view my sin as idolatry, the Old Testament was no longer foreign to me. My sin was everywhere. Do you want the Old Testament open to you? View your sin as idolatry. Idolatry is the most talked about event in the Old Testament. It's everywhere in the book of Kings because people are everywhere in the book of Kings. Most of you don't believe you have a problem with idolatry because you associate it with shrines, temples, carved images, and golden calves. But idolatry goes deeper than that. Heart idolatry is present everywhere. What do heart idols look like? They are anything that promise to deliver the things that only Christ can deliver. Happiness, security, peace, meaning in life, significance, identity, salvation. 1 Kings 12 and 13, I realize it's 3,000 years removed from you and 6,000 miles removed from you. Yet what's going on in their heart is going on in your heart. I'm going to tell you the story of the world. The story that sits on top of every other story. Your heart is an idol factory. It's pumping out little golden calves. Your heart is an idol factory. John Calvin is credited with originally saying that. It's true in our story. Two times Jeroboam's heart is mentioned as the source. It says that the new festival came from Jeroboam's heart. It says he made the golden calves because they were in his heart. Idolatry always begins in the heart. Idolatry is not so much about what your knee bows to, but more what your soul leans on. It's been said an idol is often a good thing, that we make a God thing, and therefore it becomes a bad thing. An idol is often a good thing, that we make a, a God thing, and therefore it becomes a bad thing. What good things are you pursuing to a greater degree than Christ? Idolatry is more present in your heart than you ever realized. These people are attempting to bow at the feet of the gods in the Egyptian culture. You, you know who worshipped golden calves? Egypt. In each culture, the gods may look different, but the principle is the same. You must avoid the idols of your culture. 
you may look at Jeroboam in this text and say, Kyle, I am not the least bit attracted to that form of idolatry. When you hear the word idolatry, you think statues, a crude picture of bowing before a block of wood or a hunk of, of marble. You absolve yourself of this sin. The reality is, you're just a more sophisticated idolater. The second question. Do you desire to find your heart idols? We want to expose the golden cows that our hearts are producing. That's not easy because idols in our lives are not always obvious. Here are some exercises that will help you identify the golden cows in your life. By the way, none of them are original with me. Pastors have helped me with this and they've been writing on this for years. Your golden cow says, you can't live without me and I can satisfy you. It promises to satisfy you. It says, if you drink my milk, you will be satisfied. For some single adults, it's marriage. You believe the good life only begins when you meet that person. You feel like life without marriage is empty. You obsess about it. I must find someone. What if I missed him today on aisle three? Some people are serial daters because they are terrified of being alone. For some single military guys, you obsess about finding that trophy wife. You think how she looks will make people finally respect you. One pastor pointed out, if you are dependent on marriage as the answer, you will obsess because yours is no good. Or fantasize about a new marriage or the premature death of your spouse. There are a lot of people who worship the God of an ideal family. You struggle with your children because they don't look perfect. They're not athletic enough. They're not gifted enough on some musical instrument. What you are longing for in that ideal family is found in Christ. By the way, don't idolize marriage. The arms you are longing for are Jesus' arms. And sometimes I think books, movies, and conferences are guilty of placing too much weight on the perfect marriage. The message is, you get this, and you'll be happy. The flip side is, miss this, and your life is over. Jesus never said, the perfect marriage will satisfy you. My wife is wonderful. She cares for our children, quarterbacks the home, puts things in motion, loves me unconditionally. Wonderful wife, but a terrible God. Whenever I make a God out of her, we have problems. And whenever she makes a God out of me, we have problems. God designed you with a void that no person can fill. Only Jesus Christ, the sinless one. Come drink of his water and you will never thirst again. I want you to have a great marriage. A real reflection of Christ and the church. I say that often. But I don't want you to put a weight on marriage that Jesus never did. You can have an awful marriage and still be satisfied. 
Because true satisfaction is found in Jesus Christ. See, some people believe marriage will satisfy. Others believe a career will. Would you be okay if you never progress in your career? What if your big ship never comes in? There are many different golden cows that promise satisfaction. Are you bowing at the feet of them? When you point to something and say, unless I have that, I can't be happy. That's worship. I will never be happy until I have children. My health improves. I retire. I become the head man at the job. People recognize how valuable I am. My injustice is made right. When something is the object of your hopes and dreams, then you are worshiping that thing. Uh, church, all of this is application, trying to show you that you are an idolater just like the people in the passage. Your golden cow can rip your guts out. It can emotionally bankrupt you. Here's how you know you have turned something into an idol. If you lose it, it devastates you. If you lose a good thing, you're sad. You lose a God thing, you're devastated. The late Tim Keller said, and I quote, A sure sign of the presence of idolatry is inordinate anxiety, anger, or discouragement when our idols are thwarted. You get super down because the kids misbehaved. You get low because the business deal didn't go through. You get depressed when you view someone else's life on social media. Are you worshiping something that can sustain the weight of your soul? Your golden cow will demand that you continually sacrifice to it. That's what Jeroboam did. He was sacrificing to the gold calf in the text. That's what was happening when the man of God bust through. If you idolize your job, you will sacrifice your integrity to advance in it. You will become a work martyr who will not take his vacation days. If you idolize your children, you will become a tiger mom who will put your child above everything. Your time in the word, your time in corporate worship. I will sacrifice anything for my idol. If you idolize health, you will become an exercise addict. You will anguish over missed workouts. Sacrifice time with children, spouse, anything so that you can snort the gym. If you idolize money, you will not give generously to the local church. It's not that you're stingy. It's just that obtaining your idol of comfort and convenience, a beach house, vehicle, whatever, demands that you not give to God right now. Idols continually demand sacrifices from you to keep them happy. God doesn't. Jesus is the only sacrifice demanded to, to appease the wrath of God. Your golden cow will need to be protected. Jeroboam put that altar back together. It, 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 was, it, it was torn apart. Jeroboam put it back together, wiped the dust off the golden calf. He protected it against the man of God. One man said, if reputation is your God, 
then you will always have to protect your reputation. Make sure you get the credit. Make sure no one ever criticizes you. And you probably have a deep-seated fear of being humiliated and people not respecting you. You must recognize that idols always disappoint. They are weak. They can't deliver on their promises. You are looking at someone who has to constantly repent of idolatry. Constantly. Question number three. Do you realize someone around you can identify your idols more clearly than you can? You know who couldn't see his idols? His idolatry? Who could not see his idolatry? Jeroboam. And all Israel. The ten northern tribes. You know who could see the idols and the idolatry clearly? The man of God. The unnamed prophet. He saw what they could not see. Here's a great theological truth. Sin makes you blind. Sin makes you blind. Paul David Tripp wrote a book, one of my top five favorites, called Dangerous Calling. In it, he said, I was a very angry man. The problem was, I didn't know I was an angry man. I thought no one had a more accurate view of me than I did. And I simply did not see myself as angry. I told Luella, that's his wife, I told Luella numerous times that I thought she was just a garden variety discontented wife. This dude was totally blinded to his anger issues. Could you be just as blinded? If every relationship you have is difficult, do you see the common theme? Do not fall into believing that no one has a more accurate view of you than you do. Sin blinds. There is no one we swindle more than we swindle ourselves. Well, Kyle, I'm not interested in giving permission for someone to speak into my life. Then I would guarantee you were raised in a, in a Jesus and me, privatized, individualized Christianity. And you have absolutely no idea that walking with God is a community project. There are unbelievable dangers inherent in living the Christian life on your own. This is why I'm always telling you, get in community. And I probably shouldn't even use that word because it's such a buzzword in churches. Here's what I mean. Join a local church. Commit to an imperfect group of people. Some people come in here from time to time and say, oh, this, this place is great. We, we will let you down. We're messy. We're not perfect. We don't believe we have to be. We rest in the perfection of Christ. When your idols are pointed out by someone who loves you enough to have an awkward conversation with you, then, beloved, do what Jeroboam refused to do. Go and crush those idols. Idols aren't meant to be managed. Idols are meant to be destroyed. You have to take your fight with sin more seriously. The Puritan said, repenting is, is the vomiting of the soul. Repenting is the vomiting of the soul. Everything in you will resist it. When you totally bomb and sin, there should be godly sorrow, but not a defeatist mentality. 
Did you repent? God gave that to you. View repentance as a gift. View repentance as a win. Your days are filled with spiritual stumbles. But when you go to sleep, you sleep under Jesus' blood. Non-Christian, there is hope for you to be redeemed. You don't have to be Jeroboam. You can repent and put your faith in the claims of Christ. Leave your sin and run to Jesus Christ. We are halfway finished with the last movement. Jeroboam fortifies two cities and plants two churches. God deploys one prophet and interrupts one service. Kyle asks three questions and, and here's where we are. And gives three life-changing lessons. I hope they are. Only the Spirit can make that happen. I hope they are. The first three questions all about idolatry. I want you to see you, you are no different from Jeroboam. Now, some applications tied a little tighter to the text. Three life-changing lessons. Life-changing lesson number one. You do not use Christianity. You do not use Christianity. What was Jeroboam doing in the text? He was using the worship of God. This is a temptation for all of us to employ religion for our own purposes. Don't play the religious game. Jeroboam's idols, Jeroboam's idol really wasn't the golden calf. It was authority and power. If you need authority and power to continue in life, they have become your substitute Messiah. Jeroboam used religion to gain power and influence. Historian Edward Gibbon was talking about Rome, and he said in the last days of Rome, all religions were regarded by the people as equally true, by the philosophers as equally false, and by the politicians as equally useful. Commentator Dale Ralph Davis notes that Jeroboam turns away from orthodoxy not because it's no longer true, but because it's no longer useful. Jeroboam's man-made religion was more about himself than God. Beloved, I don't want this to be a shock for you, but God doesn't exist for you. You exist for God. Don't use him. He uses you. However he pleases, wherever he pleases. Christianity isn't designed to make life easy for you. In some ways, it should make life much harder for you. The second life-changing lesson, your insecurity will likely lead to idolatry. Your insecurity will likely lead to idolatry. At least it did with Jeroboam. He did nine things all arising from insecurity and contributing to his idolatry. Anxiety leads you to creating your own gods of security where you attempt to control and manipulate the situation. Fears and anxiety take you away from God. Anxiety drove Jerry to create gods. He was anxious about not being king over the ten tribes. 
He was anxious, church, despite the fact that God told him back in chapter 11 that because of Solomon's sin, he would be king over 10 of the 12 tribes. Over how many? Well, let me take this, this coat and I'll, I'll rip it into 10 pieces and then hand them to you so you can remember. Despite the prophetic word that transferred the kingdom to him, Jerry still doubts its certainty. The need for security led to his idolatry. Insecurity leads to idolatry. Building up some other kind of security. Jerry's security was found in power and control, not God's word. Theologian Philip Ryken calls this the terrifying prospect of actually trusting God. That word of promise was not enough for Jeroboam. He needs something more secure than God's word. One pastor said, We are frequently quite happy to be a disciple of Jeroboam, walking by logic and not by faith, by calculation and not by commitment. Jerry followed his fears. You cannot follow your fears. You must follow the promises of God. Do you find the Lord's pledge sufficient for your needs? Are the promises of God assurance enough for you? Jeroboam should not have feared the loss of his throne. For God promised to establish the kingdom if he only obeyed the Lord. Which he did not do. Maybe I should say it like this. You don't have to prop up God's promises. They can stand on their own. Unlike Jerry, you can choose to trust the sweet promises of God. I'll end with this, the last life-changing lesson, number three. Stand bold in the face of those who try to corrupt worship. This is a plea. Stand bold in the face of those who try to corrupt worship. A good biblical theology that arrives from the text relates to worship. Look at worship all throughout the Bible. This whole book is a worship book. How God deserves it and how Satan corrupts it. Satan has always been trying to corrupt worship. And we need an army of people who will fight to keep it pure. Satan corrupted worship in the garden. And when you go to the last pages of the Bible, the last days of history, you find him attempting to do the same thing. Manufactured religion is the work of Antichrist. Satan doesn't have a problem with you worshiping. He simply doesn't want you to worship the true God. Will you fight for purity? You say, they're very sincere, Pastor Kyle. They're very sincere. Sincerity doesn't excuse theological error. We got some crazy stuff going on in churches in the States. And they can say they are making modifications or variations or adjustments to make it benefit us. You can call them churches, but that is not what they are. Like in this day, you can call them temples to Yahweh. But that's not what they were. 
regardless of what Jerry is saying, he's made other gods, not planted other churches. He's not made worship more convenient. He's made worship polluted. Don't get it twisted. They aren't trying to make it bloodless. They are still sacrificing. Don't be fooled when people still talk about sin and sacrifice. But it's a faux man-made religion. This false religion still spoke about sins. Still spoke about the need to be forgiven through sacrifices being made. They surrounded the worship of the golden calf with elements of true worship. It can have all the same elements, preaching, singing, but God isn't receiving any of it. It's a bootleg religion, a counterfeit religion. In the end, God reveals the sham of man-made religion. And he uses a son of David to do it. Not Josiah. Jesus. Jesus in the New Testament temple, Herod's temple, began flipping tables. Why? Corrupt worship. Worship matters. And I'm ending with this. Stand bold in the face of those who try to corrupt worship. This Mog, this man of God, seems like the ideal prophet at the moment. He's standing strong against corrupt worship. There is a bizarre twist coming. And we shall find it next week. Let's pray together. Father, in our text, King Jeroboam had a withered hand. In Mark 3, King Jesus heals a withered hand. Your son is better in every way. How deep your love for us in sending us Christ. Amen.